0: Welcome to Cinematic Doctrine, a non-spoiler Christian movie podcast where we sit at the table of cinema and eat. Tonight we'll be dining on David Michaud's The King. Now, I want to make sure I get this right. Timothée Chalamet. I probably didn't, but it was really bumming me out watching so many people just call him Timothy and then ask him if that's right and he would just look down in a bashful expression and say... It's whatever works for you, but it's originally Timote. Again, I probably didn't get it right, but like, come on, guys, you can't just change his born name because it's hard to pronounce. Ugh, I had to just get that out of the way. I had to. Timothée Chalamet has been a popular actor as of late, and it's a bummer that nobody is just respecting the dude and trying to call him by his real name. But you're not here for that, and you want to hear about my thoughts on Netflix's new movie, The King, so let's just jump right into it. Here's what The King is all about. Hal, played by Timothy Chalamet, wayward prince and reluctant heir to the English throne, has turned his back on royal life and is living among the people. But when his tyrannical father dies, Hal is crowned King Henry V and is forced to embrace the life he had previously tried to escape. Now the young king must navigate the palace politics, chaos and war his father left behind, and the emotional strings of his past life, including his relationship with his closest friend and mentor, the aging alcoholic knight John Falstaff, played by Joel Edgerton. The King is rated R for some strong violence and language. At certain points, the strong violence is haunting and visceral, while other points are claustrophobic and nightmarish, and it involves violence among men and children alike, although across the two-plus-hour runtime, I would say the violence only takes up about 30 to 40 minutes of it, with the majority happening during the third act of the film. The language is neither pervasive nor is it all that common, the most of it taking place in the beginning of the movie. However, there are a few uses of the F-word and a couple vulgar phrases used by one character to taunt another. There's no mention of this in the certificate, but there is implied sexual content between a topless man and a woman in a thin nightgown. It's so brief it could have been cut from the film, in all honesty. A shame they left it in, but easily skippable. Now before we take a look at The King, I wanted to share real quick that if you've come to enjoy Cinematic Doctrine and would like to support the show, be sure to leave a review on your respective podcast app at the end of this episode. You can also check out two new shows featured under Cinematic Doctrine called Trailer Talk and Monthly Movie News if you're interested in more content. And be sure to check out cinematicdoctrine.com where you can also get connected with our social media. Also, Cinematic Doctrine has a Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month, as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from, all of which go toward making cinematic doctrine the best podcast it can be. So, The King. It's good, but it's unconventional. And I think if you let it be, this film can be great, if not one of the best of the year. But that's the thing about The King, you sort of have to let it be great, because if you don't, then it's going to be a really boring, vacant, listless film that did nothing but waste two and a half hours of your life. And there's no better example of this confusing experience than the first act of the film, which largely sets up Chalamet's young-to-be king. Hal floats around, constantly sleeping, repeatedly being woken amidst hangovers by royal obligation to the king. And he also has a passive hatred of injustice about him. He hates his father's ruthless and warmongering lifestyle, seeks to protect his brother's life, and carries a strong friendship with fellow drinking buddy Falstaff. But the way these scenes are depicted is very… I almost feel inclined to say unfinished. The entire first act is like scene after scene juxtaposed against one another to set the stage for the second and third act. And I talked with my wife about the film afterward, and how there could easily be more to the film that was simply stripped away to have a comfortable, digestible runtime. As digestible anything over two hours can be, of course. In fact, while she didn't watch it with me, she said aloud, why didn't they simply make a miniseries? To which I thought to myself, yeah, why not? So even the first act of this long movie begs to reconsider the medium it's even in. It's almost like it shouldn't have been a movie to begin with when considering how much content is covered in the first act. And while all of that is fairly negative criticism, I also feel the first act of this film strangely works. I recall mentioning in my Once Upon a Time in Hollywood review how a plotless film has the opportunity to feel more relatable, as our daily lives oftentimes feel incredibly plotless. Things sort of just happen to us, and we're not so much agents of change as we are reacting to change. I bring this up because The King in its first act feels sort of like our lives in a different sense. Dare I say it, the first act of the film is marginally plotless, and while Hal isn't a character who simply reacts to change, As there are quite a few things Hal does in this first act that would sow the seeds of how he takes changes and makes his own choices. They are snapshots or scrapbook pages in a history of a character we'll soon be with for the next two hours. Something about that feels oddly relatable. It feels like the way a friend would try and tell a story, recalling a memory, and jumping swiftly from one experience to the next, all linked with a thin yarn that leads to the climax of their story. In the case of The King, it's everything leading up to the death of King Henry IV, mounting to Hal's coronation and kingship as Henry V. I land in the camp that excuses the first act, but recognizes its glaring faults. And if we look at the rest of the film, there are other, equal complaints one could have for both the second and third act. For instance, the film has a sluggish, humorless pace that is probably a turnoff to most audiences and while it doesn't become increasingly dour like Joker, it keeps a steady tone of being fairly grim and brooding. From patient profile shots of Hal's ominous stare to shiver-inducing strings and horn sections, to unforgettable visuals of a horrifying nature, the king paints an abominable picture of war, greed, and a growing misanthropic leadership. But it's not the kind of movie without its bearings. King Henry V isn't depicted as a callous, unfeeling character at least not entirely. Hal is presented as a man bearing the insurmountable weight of royalty and responsibility. He makes decisions that very few men ever entertain, and there are constant questions of, is it worth it? Does this even matter? Or most importantly, what's the point? I felt that question sprout and germinate while I lay bundled up on my couch with a soft blanket and equally soft pillow. And it wasn't a demeaning question as I pulled my blanket up to my nose. I wasn't scoffing at David Michaud for his interpretation of Joel Edgerton's script. I was asking it more like someone would search desperately for a napkin or roll of paper towels. I would use the question to clean up the bits and pieces of the film that left me lost, revealing the purpose of the film behind what felt to be really, really peculiar decisions. Because at the end of the day, despite the remarkable imagery present in The King and some superb choreography toward the end of the film, and an increasingly haunting score, not to mention some pretty great performances and Robert Pattinson is just having a blast by the way, I need something more than talent to sell me on something so dark and menacing. And then it hit me. That was the point. The big question of what's the point seemed to be the mantra chanted throughout the film and I think one of the things that may be a flaw to others is simply a necessary evil to emphasize this claim. Early on in the film, there's a fairly heavy-handed segment where you can essentially predict a big thing that will happen in the end. I can't get into detail for obvious reasons, but the idea here is that when the third act rolls around and we're introduced to the climax of the film, I think most people will go, Ha! I knew it! It was so obvious! and imply that this is a negative case of bad writing, but I don't feel that way. I suspect some might feel like the quote-unquote third act twist is a poor attempt at pulling the rug out from the audience, but to me it seemed as though this is a case of pulling the rug out from under reason. You see, we stack up our lives and our thoughts and our actions on a foundation. In Christianity, our entire worldview is backed on the idea that Christ came to pay for our sins and in his infinite glory overcame them and brings us into new life. That's like a super-duper Cliff Notes version of why we do what we do, but that's our foundation. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12-19 through a logic problem, wherein if we cannot believe what Christ says about the resurrection of the dead, then how can we believe that Christ was raised from his own death? Or, furthermore, how the preaching of the word of God through Christ is in vain and subsequently our own faith is in vain. Suffice to say, he writes with the intent to say that we cannot build our faith on a foundation that has no standing. And this isn't limited to the Christian. Everyone has a foundation. Jesus' parable of the wise and foolish builders found in Matthew seven twenty-four through 27 makes this clear. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Everyone has a foundation, whether it's built atop the foundation of the Lord or some other foundation. We all have one, and it's through storms we recognize the integrity of our foundation. But sometimes we forget our foundations, or maybe we're feeling like it's time to move on. We cover them up with a rug, and that's when the storm comes along to strip it away and remind you what's beneath. And that's not all that uncommon. I think any mature Christian has had the experience of panic, fear, and misery amidst the storm, only to be reminded that a foundation in Christ cannot be shaken. Now, in the case of the king, That storm comes in a war with France, and while it may not seem so immediate, Hal's kingdom is built upon a foundation of war, deceit, and malice. And the scary thing is that it sort of just happens. There's almost a lack of agency present in the king, as though Hal, despite becoming the king of England and wielding absolute power, is nothing more than a headpiece for a grand machine. He may be the shiniest piece of metal, glistening in the sun, but he's still nothing more than another component that keeps the system running. And it's fascinating, because as I said that, I recall saying earlier that Hal has a fair amount of agency, but that's almost exclusively limited to the beginning of the film. Toward the end, sure he's making decisions, but they're the sort of decisions you make when walking down a hallway. You either move forward or turn back, which is unlike the decisions you can make in an open field where possibilities stretch across the horizon. And so, not only is Hal's home built upon a foundation of war, deceit, and malice, it's almost like he doesn't realize it until it's too late. But you haven't, and you know what's going on from start to finish. That's what feeds the dark tone of the film, after all. You can see where he's headed, even if he can't. You can see the house he's building, and you know it's not a safe, reliable foundation. And that's where the question, what's the point, comes in. If the cost of uniting a kingdom is at the hands of war, deceit, and malice, then what value is there in uniting a kingdom at all? Do the ends justify the means? And if so, why bother with the ends to justify the means? Perhaps things were better off to begin with. Or maybe it's all just a grand comedy. The joke is that the ends don't justify the means, but the means incur the end to a sour, grotesque grave. You're stuck living with the means in such a manner that the ends can never be enjoyed. But I digress, that's almost a faux philosophy, a sophomoric attempt at explaining away the horrors of the world as though the solution to horror is more horror, or even that horror is a perpetual experience. Neither are true, we know that, but it's still interesting to explore, to say the least. That all said, some of you may be thinking, Melvin, King Henry V, united the land and brought a period of prosperity for England. And yes, you're right, he did do that. In real life. But I'm talking about the movie, and while the film isn't historically accurate, I don't think that really matters at the end of the day. Life is a mess at times, and that doesn't necessarily make for a good movie. Even when we tell stories to one another in conversation, we doctor things up to make them more entertaining, emotional, or memorable. So... I don't see why a film can't do the same. Besides, The King is a good film. At least that's what I think. But anyone listening could tell that there are a lot of points where one could fall on either side of the spectrum. One could love it, another could hate it. That's simply the kind of movie The King is. So what do you have to lose? Open up that Netflix subscription and start watching The King. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Cinematic Doctrine. If you've seen The King, what did you think of it? Do you like dark and brooding films like this, or were you getting fed up with the historical inaccuracies? If you're listening on Cinematic Doctrine's website, let me know in the comments below, or shoot me an email to cinematicdoctrine at gmail.com. If you're on Letterboxd, I have a list compiling every movie I've reviewed on Cinematic Doctrine with direct links to those episodes, so be sure to check that out, and consider following me on Letterboxd for quick, bite-sized reviews on every movie I watch. If you'd like to support the show, jump on over to Cinematic Doctrine's Facebook page and be sure to follow for updates on episodes, movie news, and my usual shenanigans. From there, you can also get connected with the Cinematic Doctrine Facebook group and join the conversation. You can also support the show by leaving a review for Cinematic Doctrine on your respective podcast app. And if that's not enough, head on over to Cinemac Doctrine's Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can join other patrons and vote on a movie I review once a month as well as take joy in feeding my coffee addiction. Any amount is appreciated with multiple tiers to choose from. All of it goes toward making Cinematic Doctrine the best podcast it can be. A special shout out to those who support at the Art House Theater tier. Thank you so much, Mom and Dad. You're the best. All of this will be available in the show notes. Until next time, stay cool. Want some Cinematic Doctrine swag? You're in luck. We've got 3-inch Cinematic Doctrine logo stickers exclusive for Patreon supporters. Perfect for your travel mug or laptop. Head over to patreon.com forward slash cinematic doctrine, link in the show notes, and choose the independent theater tier. Doing so will net you other perks too. But let's be real, the podcast stickers are the coolest perk. So get yourself some podcast stickers by supporting on Patreon.